There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. On this episode of Revealing the True Light, I'm going to continue the teaching on the beliefs, the doctrines of the Catholic Church. Are they true or false? Are they legitimate and scriptural? Or are they traditional? This is a very important teaching because there are over 2 billion professing Christians in the world, and about half of them are Roman Catholic. The scripture does say that if we're going to be worshipers of God, that true worshipers worship him in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. There are millions of Catholics who are very fervent in their devotion to biblical principles, to living a Christ-like character out in their lives. I believe if they are truly sincere about knowing the truth and living the truth, that this series of teachings on the beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church could well adjust their belief system to empower them in a greater way. And if you happen to be a Catholic, I urge you to listen, knowing that I do not have a judgmental or critical attitude. I was raised Catholic. I was an altar boy for many years. I was on my way to the monastery at one point. I was very devoted, and I have warm memories of the nuns and the priests that I served under who were very passionate about being selfless, Christ-like people who had crucified their flesh in order to serve others. I have nothing but praise for that kind of heart that they showed toward God and toward others. However, my highest devotion and my highest commitment is to the truth. And at a certain point in my life, when I was born again, and then later on when I was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, I came into a whole new way of looking at biblical truth. My life was changed and my doctrine was changed. And I feel compelled by the love of God to share with Catholics and non-Catholics alike what I have discovered in the Word about the beliefs I used to embrace wholeheartedly. Now, in the last episode, I taught on three of the primary beliefs of the Catholic Church. Number one, that the Roman Catholic Church is the one true church, and I disagree with that now. I believe the possessing church is non-denominational or interdenominational. It's those who possess a true and personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two was the infallibility of the Pope and the claim that he is the vicar of Christ on earth. Now, the position of the papacy is not in Scripture. It's something assumed because of Peter's role in the early church. But I no longer believe that God assigns to one man that position. 
And belief number three is infant baptism. And the conclusion we made on the last episode was that baptism should be immersion and it should be done only when a person is mature enough to acknowledge sin, repent of sin, and sincerely commit their lives to the Lord. Now, on this episode, we're going to focus first on the exclusivity of the priesthood. What do I mean by that? That there are a select group of individuals who commit themselves to the Lord in a greater than normal way, who qualify to be included in the quote-unquote priesthood. Is that scriptural? Is that correct? Now, let me mention right from the start that in the approved catechism on the authorized Vatican website, the Catholic stance is only mentioned a few times in a very obscure location in the document. And it says that there are two divisions of the priesthood in Catholicism, the common priesthood, which belongs to all Catholics, and the ministerial priesthood, which is only assigned to those who are in leadership roles. But is this biblical? Certainly not when you look at what Jesus did in the ushering in of the new covenant. For instance, in 1 Peter 2.5, the scripture refers to all believers as a holy priesthood that are built up a spiritual house for a habitation of God through the Holy Spirit. And then in 1 Peter 2.9, God refers to us as a chosen generation and a royal priesthood. All who have been born again from the beginning of the church until the final person who is saved are a part of a chosen generation. That means a group of people who can claim the same father or are part of the same era. And we are part of this new covenant era. We have been born again and have become sons of of God. We have a relationship with the same Heavenly Father. We are a chosen generation. And all who have been washed in the blood and included in that number are also a royal priesthood. And that phrase, royal priesthood, represents how we are both kings and priests, those who reign and those who serve which is the general sense or meaning of the terms. For instance, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, it says that Jesus Christ has washed us from our sins in his own blood, and he has made us kings and priests. And we're going to reign with him, but it's not a future thing. It is a past tense fact that if we have been washed in the blood of Jesus, we are kings and priests. We reign over sin, reign over the corruption of the world, reign over the carnal nature, reign over the adversary Satan and all of his demonic underlings, and we reign over the curse that conquers all of humanity. As kings, we have this power, this authority, but as priests, we serve God and we serve others. We are all called to that, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, and we are king priests. We are those who reign and those who serve. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word translated priest is Kohen, and it means one who has access into the presence of God. There is not an elite group that has access into holy or sacred things to the exclusion of the rest of the church, where they fill a mediatorial role. 
The Bible says there is one God and one mediator between God and Christ, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Now, I do agree that there are leadership positions in the body of Christ, and we do fill a lesser mediatorial role, and those positions are apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. But nowhere in the New Testament does it consign certain individuals to a priesthood role. Now, in Catholic doctrine, they liken the priesthood to the presbytery or to the elders in a church, and there is a connection in the original language. However, that does not put these priestly individuals in an elite class that can only offer up the communion, that can only perform certain functions like absolution for sin, and we're going to get to that more later on. There is a tradition and a carryover, however, from the Old Testament when there was a unique priesthood. Originally, in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, we find that God's desire was that all of Israel be a kingdom of priests. But it was later on that the tribe of Levi was assigned that role, and only the Levitical priests could perform certain functions. The Levites fulfilled ministry in the outer court. The chief priests, who were the sons of Aaron, fulfilled ministry in the holy place. And then the high priest, who was a pope-like figure, was the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies. And so you had these tiers of priestly authority that all changed in the New Testament, and it is no longer a relevant organizational setup. Every believer is called to serve God, to minister to God in a priestly role. And much more could be said about that. But I do believe with all of my heart, it is revolutionary when we realize that every blood-washed, born-again child of God can enter God's presence and fellowship intimately with God yourself. How powerful is that? Now, belief number five of the Catholic Church that we're going to focus on is the ecclesiastical clothing worn by the clergy. Now, the tradition of religious clothing became more pronounced in the fourth century among those in leadership in the church, but originally it was not the case. In the year 1215, in the Fourth Lateran Council, it was made mandatory mandatory for all the Christian clergy to wear distinctive dress. And there are really two types of dress that are worn by those in the leadership position of the Catholic Church. There is what is called clerical clothing, which is the ordinary day-to-day dress of those who fill that role, and then liturgical clothing, which is only used for sacred ceremonies. Now, did Jesus wear clerical clothing? He was the Son of God. He was God manifested on the earth. Was it necessary for him to represent his sacred identity by wearing a unique kind of clothing? Well, there are differences of opinion on that. 
some Catholics might cite the situation where Jesus went up secretly to Jerusalem. How could he do that? They said by wearing common clothing instead of rabbinical clothing. And they said that uh, people readily recognized him as a rabbi because he wore the same type of clothing that rabbis wore. Now, that has some logic to it. However, there is nothing in the Bible to actually prove that. I tend to believe that he wore the clothing of the common people because one of Jesus' most remarkable qualities was his ability to identify with people on the low echelon of society. He would eat with sinners and publicans. He would mingle among the worst, and he did not have some kind of religious garb in order to identify how he could influence them towards spirituality. It was the love that emanated from him, the anointing that emanated from him, virtue that was like a river pouring out of him to heal the sick and deliver the oppressed. No one knows for certain if he wore a distinctive kind of dress, but absolutely the Bible never indicates that. And so there can be two opinions on this issue, but I hold to the one that he did not. And of course, the early church, they were made up of common people that God used in an uncommon way. They were former fishermen and tax collectors. Did they wear significant religious-styled clothing? I really believe that they just identified with the common people by dressing like they did. Through the centuries in different denominations, there has been different areas of emphasis with regard to clerical clothing. Some denominations emphasize it. Some de-emphasize it. Some have discarded it altogether. I, as a follower of Jesus, say it is absolutely unnecessary. And it lends itself to this unbiblical division between the laity and the clergy. You don't find that in Scripture. You find Every believer who's received beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, every single believer who has become genuinely converted is referred to in Isaiah 61 as the ministers of our God and the priests of the Lord. There's no division between clergy and laity. That's a man-made structure. There are levels of authority in the body of Christ, but there is no division. The ground is level at the cross. We're all washed in the blood. We're all just as righteous in the sight of God as a result. And I believe that's valid and scripturally supported. Now, belief number six is celibacy for priests and nuns. Is this scriptural? Well, there are definitely certain passages that can be referenced as being supportive of celibacy among those who are called to separate themselves to the work of God, such as 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, and verses 25 through 40, and 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, and I'm going to touch on those in just a minute. However, it was never required. Peter is recognized as the first pope, yet he was married. Also, Paul indicated that forbidding to marry was a doctrine of demons that would be evidenced in the world, especially in the last days. 
bishops and deacons were commanded to be the husband of one wife. Absolutely the opposite with regard to bishops that we see in the Catholic Church. Now, let me focus on the specific scriptures a little bit more in detail. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25, Paul said, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord. Did you hear what I said? He's giving his opinion, but he says, I have no commandment from the Lord. Then he went on to say, I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. Listen, the church was in distress in those days. They were under great persecution. And he said, it is good for a man to remain as he is. If he's bound to a wife, don't seek to be loosed. If he's loose from a wife, don't seek a wife. And then further on in the passage, he says, I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your prophet, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. So he's saying this is not a rule. This is not a binding directive from God. It's his opinion that you can invest more time in the work of the Lord if you're unmarried. And there's much more all the way through to verse 40. I urge you to read that passage of Scripture. A great verse to show that most of the early leaders were married is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, where Paul says, Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord, indicating that Jesus actually had siblings? And Cephas, that was another name for Peter. Paul said all of them have wives. And he was talking about him and Barnabas not having a wife and just devoting themselves to the ministry. But he never said it was a requirement. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 and 12, both bishops and deacons are supposed to be the husbands of one wife. And, of course, Paul did encourage celibacy in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 7 through 9. He said, I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if, if they remain even as I. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The final thing I have to say on this before I close is First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Paul said, Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits. The King James says, seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received. Now, the most important phrase there is in verse 3, forbidding to marry. He said that is a doctrine of demons, and it's 
from the influence of a deceiving spirit. I believe that there are genuine, genuine, God-loving, passionate individuals so committed to following a walk with God that they're willing to separate themselves and take upon themselves the vow of celibacy. I admire people who are that self-sacrificing, but these scriptures say it is not a requirement if you're going to be a leader in the body of Christ. Years ago, I shared these scriptures with a man who was studying for the priesthood in Rome and was connected to the Vatican. And when he saw what the Bible said, he left the process he was involved in to become a priest. He left the Catholic Church. And the last I heard, he married. He didn't forsake his faith, but he did embrace the Bible. And that's what I urge you to do as well. Now, in the next session, we'll be continuing with some very important beliefs like confession and absolution and penance. And if these things are necessary, if they are biblical or if they are extra biblical and just traditional. Join me on the next episode of Revealing the True Light. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.